Good morning again, everyone. Um, it's, just, it's great to be here. Uh, good to see you all for our first Stewardship Sunday. By the way, it's all of our first Stewardship Sunday. It's my first Stewardship Sunday, so we'll just see what happens, okay? But I want to let you guys know that the, the message that, that I have for you this morning is really simple. It's really a very simple message. But it's something that I think we need to be reminded of. I know as I was, was um, uh, studying for this and preparing for this sermon, I know that the things that these truths that we already know, uh, when you see them again, when you really start thinking about them, they're really just, they're convicting. And, and that's what I hope to accomplish here this morning. I hope that... that uh, Whatever we may learn, we at least come away convicted, that we, we at least come away with a, a new appreciation and hopefully a new passion for stewardship. So with that in mind, I ask that you take your Bibles and turn again to Mark chapter 12, and our text this morning is verses 41 through 44. And as you are turning to our passage in Mark, I do want to make sure that I clarify something early on. When the church starts talking about money, I know the first instinct that many people have is to hold on to their wallets. And that concern is not without some validity. There are obviously many counterfeit ministries filled with motivational speakers charlatans and hustlers disguised as pastors. And to say that their primary objective is less than God-centered would be a gross understatement. There are many nuances to the way these religious imposters present their sales pitch, but the gist is usually something like this. God will bless you if you give to my ministry. We've all heard that, right? Of course, this type of religious extortion is not a new thing, but I I will get to that in just a few minutes. The point I want us to understand right now is that when it comes to money, the church has a long history uh, of grossly missing the mark, of being corrupted by greed and, and taking advantage of the very ones it is called to watch over. But does that mean that we shouldn't talk about money? Of course not. It's funny, when it comes to issues of money and possessions, the loudest voices in the church are usually the wrong ones. And because of this, there is sometimes an apprehension by many good churches to talk about these things. And yet, as I'm sure many of you know, Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. In fact, there isn't even a close second. Jesus taught that we should use our resources to support legitimate religious institutions that God has established for his work. Jesus taught us that we should pay our taxes. Yay, right? He taught us that we should use our resources to help the poor. He even commends the wise use and management of money when making a purchase. But he also warns us of the dangers of money. He talks about how money can become an idol. 
And he warned us not to put our trust in it. He taught us that we shouldn't hoard it to ourselves. And in all these things, he taught us that we should handle money with integrity and never acquire it through deceitful means. Now, let me ask you, why do you think that money was at the forefront of our Lord's teachings? Why does it consume so much of his ministry? Well, I think we know the answer, don't we? There is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and the way we think about and handle money. And that's why the issue of stewardship is so important. The way in which we handle God's provision says a great deal about where our hearts are. So what is a steward? What is a steward? The word steward is used in the New Testament. There are actually two words, but the most common one, it's usually translated from the Greek word oikonomos. By the way, this is where we get our English word economy. Oikonomos is a combination of the word oikos, which means house, and nomos, which is the word translated as law. It's as if to say the steward is the law over the house. That's the idea. In the first century, most households of distinction had a steward. A steward was a, a trusted servant who was given authority, authority to rule over or manage his master's household. He had full charge of his master's resources and could even use them to his own advantage if he chose. But he was fully accountable to his master and had to be able to justify those choices when called upon. Well, as you know, in this same way, Christians are stewards of God's resources. In Psalm 24, 1, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. In other words, the earth and everything and every person in it belong to who? They belong to God, right? And the resources we have, well, they are not our own. Again, David affirms this in First Chronicles when he prays to us and he says, uh, both riches and honor come from you. In other words, God gives us everything that we have. It's a gift. Hannah likewise affirms this when she says in 1 Samuel 2, 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. So every provision that we have from our wealth to our abilities to, to our children, None of them really belong to us. None of them really belong to us. All of these things actually belong to God. And it is by his sovereign hand that they have been entrusted to our care. You see, whether realized or not, every person is a steward of God's provision. Now, from an intellectual perspective... This isn't a hard thing to grasp. I think most of us here this morning understands this concept of stewardship. But do we really think about the ramifications? Do we take stewardship seriously? 
just imagine for a moment that you are hired to be a steward of someone's estate, of a, uh, someone's estate here on earth. Just as it was in the ancient world, imagine that, that you have full authority to manage this house and resources. Let me ask you, how seriously would you take that responsibility? Would you use those resources primarily for yourself? Or would you attempt to be prudent and use them in a way that honors and pleases the estate owner, knowing that you will have to give an account for your actions? I think most of us would agree that it would be foolish to use these resources primarily for ourselves and, you, and then use little or none of them to accomplish the purposes for, for which the estate owner entrusted those resources to us. That would be foolish, right? Well, if we wouldn't practice this type of faithlessness as stewards of an earthly master's resources, how much more important is it that we not do it as stewards of those resources entrusted to us by our Heavenly Father? Now, I realize that in the context of church finances, uh, a sermon about stewardship may seem self-serving. But saints, that's not my intent. That's not my intent. While it is true that, that God has established the church and he expects Christians to support it with their resources, truth is, Stewardship is not about giving because God needs our resources. Stewardship is about our need to use those resources faithfully. You see that? You see the difference? It's not that God needs our money. It's that we need to be faithful with our resources. We, God's people, we are the great benefactors when it comes to God's provision. We are the great benefactors when God's provision is used faithfully in the church to to support godly teaching and when it provides a place where we can gather together for fellowship and to worship. We're the benefactors. And speaking of worship, stewardship is an act of worship and one of the means through which we offer praise to our Lord. Irenaeus puts it like this, quote, the offering of the church, which the Lord directed to be offered in the whole world, is accounted a pure sacrifice with God. And it is acceptable to him, not that he needs a sacrifice from us, but because he who offers is himself honored in his offering if his gift be accepted. By his offering, both honor and affection are shown to the king, end quote. Saints, stewardship is a critical spiritual matter that reveals the heart of those who profess to be Christian. And Faithfulness and stewardship ultimately distinguishes true followers of Christ from religious pretenders and hypocrites. And just like any spiritual matter, when it comes to stewardship, we need to be consistently instructed. 
We need to be consistently encouraged. We need to be consistently challenged. So, with that in mind, let us look at our text from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people putting large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you've been part of the church for any extended period of time, you are probably familiar with this story. It is one of the most popular and and perhaps most heartfelt examples of humble devotion to God. It speaks to the believer and it boldly says, this is what godly stewardship looks like. In this story, Jesus draws a sharp distinction between two types of givers, both of whom bring an offering to the temple treasury. On one hand, there are many rich who donate large sums of money. Now, I want to stop a minute just to make this more relevant to our world today. Think about this. These are the kind of people that you hope your church attracts, really, isn't it? Isn't it? They are religious. They have a, a very polished exterior. And most importantly, they have lots of expendable income that they don't mind donating, right? That's, that's a pastor's dream come true, isn't it? On the other hand, and in stark contrast to the rich, there's this one poor and lowly widow. Again, to put her in today's world, she is the exact kind of person that many churches hope they don't see coming. She seemingly has nothing of value to contribute. She's the kind of person who looks like she's going to help deplete the benevolence fund, right? This is, what, this is what the world thinks. This is what some churches think. Well, this poor widow donates two small copper coins, which together, by the way, would have been worth about one-fourth of a cent. Practically speaking, the treasury was no better off after she left than it was before she came. And yet, according to our Lord, her offering was worth more than all the large sums of money deposited into the treasury by the rich. So the obvious question we would ask here is, why is her offering so valuable? Why is her offering so valuable? Why is her exceptionally small gift praised, and why are the large gifts offered by the rich effectively condemned? Obviously, from our Lord's perspective, a gift given to God 
uh, or the value of a gift given to God is not in its monetary worth, but rather it is in something much more precious. In our text this morning, Mark provides us with a beautiful picture of what godly stewardship looks like. And there are two very plain, very simple principles that stand out, which I would like for us to focus on this morning. Two principles that ultimately define the value of what we offer to God and set faithful stewardship apart from the counterfeit. The first principle is simply this. Giving must be done with the right heart attitude. Giving must be done with the right heart attitude. Our motives are important to God. We've all seen these news stories in which a celebrity or some large corporation donates a huge sum of money to some cause There's usually some type of event that includes a press conference. And at that press conference, we see the celebrity or or the company CEO standing with someone from the charity in front of a large backdrop with the company logo. And they pose uh, for a picture and they're holding this giant check. You know, you've seen that, right? And eventually when the celebrity or CEO is interviewed, they will talk about how important this charity is to them and how glad they are to be in a position to help. Well, I don't want to be too cynical here, okay? Uh, I don't know the driving force involved every time you see this. I expect that in some cases, the monies given are given with a genuine concern for the cause in mind. But let me ask you, What do you think would happen to these charities without the press coverage? What would happen if there were no giant checks, no cameras flashing, no opportunity for celebrities or CEOs to put themselves or their business in the spotlight? What do you think would happen? Do you think giving would go up? Do you think it would stay the same? We all know what would happen, don't we? As we all know, Charitable giving is often performed with an ulterior motive that is less than noble than it, uh, less than as noble as it may appear on the surface. That is true today, and that was true in first century Israel. Just to help paint a picture of the scene that Jesus is observing in our text, the temple treasury was located in the court of women, which was an area located to the east of the temple uh, or, or to the east side of the temple. This was, in far, this was as far inside the temple gates that most people could enter. And at certain times of year, like Passover, it would have attracted large crowds. Inside the court of women, there were 13 wooden boxes along the walls. These are the offering boxes that Jesus refers to in this morning's text. And these boxes each contained a brass container called a trumpet. By the way, they called it a trumpet because uh, these containers were were shaped like inverted horns. They were small at the top and they opened up and were large at the bottom. And inscribed on each of these wooden boxes were labels that designated what the offerings were for. And when people came along, when they dropped their coins into the trumpet, the sound that it made 
against the medal would have been some indicator of the size of the donation. Well, as you might imagine, this scene with all the people and then this cha-ching of, of change dropping into the trumpets, it provided an opportunity for some of the wealthy to put on a public, dis- uh, a, a public display of their piety by contributing large sums into the temple treasury in the presence of hundreds of onlookers. Now, the scripture does not confirm this, but it probably would have not been uncommon for a rich man to come along with an offering so large that it took more than one person to carry it. We can imagine the, the silence that, that came over the crowd as he and his servants approached the treasury and deposited a small fortune inside the trumpets. Now, it's important to note that many people were under the delusion that wealth was an indicator of their standing with God. The more you have, the more righteous you must be. And there was no better place or time to show the world just how good a person you are than while in the spotlight of the temple treasury, right? Well, in direct contrast to the wealthy, there was the widow. Widows in the first century were often amongst the poorest of the poor. When their husbands passed, they usually lost their only source of income. And the social structure that had been established, it was, it was such that the inher- their, their inheritance uh, rights were, I'll just say they were tenuous at best. Generally speaking, the land was connected to the family of the male to whom it was appointed. This meant that the widow was often left with little or nothing. Now, Mosaic law had set up safety nets that were meant to protect widows and to see that they were cared for by the larger community. So the fact that this widow is in such a destitute state, it is by itself an indictment against Israel, which had obviously forsaken its God-appointed responsibility to care for widows. What is worse, however, is the fact that her circumstances have likely been intensified by the very ones who were supposed to help her. You know, and this is why I read this in the greater context earlier, it is no accident that this story occurs just after Jesus condemns the scribes, who he says beginning uh, again in Mark 12, verse 38, like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Earlier I said that religious extortion was not a new thing. Well, here's proof. Here's proof. As Jesus makes clear, these scribes who were the interpreters and teachers of the law, by the way, they were really just religious pretenders who, who liked to put on a show. They liked the applause of men. But they were also greedy charlatans. They were greedy hustlers. And they served as estate planners for widows. And as you might imagine, they took full advantage of that situation. 
often conning these most vulnerable citizens out of whatever things of value they may have been fortunate enough to hold on to. You see, the poor widow in our story has not only lost her husband, but she is a victim of a corrupt system that has forsaken its responsibility to care for her. Instead of helping her, it has deliberately contributed to her further hardship. If anyone ever had a cause to be cynical toward established religion and to keep her resources to herself, it was this lowly widow. But in light of all the injustices committed against her, how does she respond? What does she do? She donates all she has to the temple treasury. All she has. Unlike her wealthy counterparts, she obviously was not giving her offering for show. You see, saints, in the midst of all her trials, she still trusted God. And her desire with what little she had above all things was to make sure she used her resources to honor him. Amazing. She was in essence saying to God, I don't have much, but all I have belongs to you. Saints, that is what a giving heart should look like. That is what a giving heart should look like. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Jesus utters a warning that we are all familiar with. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart. There your heart will be also. You know, it's really interesting with these words. Jesus is describing the very people in our story in Mark. He's describing the rich people and he's describing the lowly widow. The rich who donated from their abundance are real life examples of those who lay up treasures on earth. They are like those who Jesus describes in Matthew 15, 8, who honor him with their lips, but whose hearts are what? Far from him. When it comes to religion, they look the part. They say the right things. But their hearts are consumed by the things of this world, which is seen in the way they handle their resources. And by the way, just so there's no confusion... I just want to mention here that Jesus is not condemning wealth by itself. Obviously, there's a lot we could say about that. But he's not condemning wealth by itself. And he is not suggesting that we not save money. What he is condemning is a heart attitude toward money that leads one to put his trust in it. What he's condemning is an attitude that leads to covetousness and that prevents us from investing our resources into the things of God. That's what he's condemning. 
So we see the rich described here, but we also see the poor widow. Uh, She's obviously an example of someone who is laying up treasure in heaven. Although she does not have much in the way of material wealth, she doesn't have much to share, it does not matter because the value of her offering is in her devotion and faithfulness, right? I know I'm going to embarrass my son, but I want to show you something here. This is a tea, okay? My son made this for me when he was little. He knew I was a Tennessee fan. He knew I liked to be punished on a regular basis each Saturday. So he made this for me. And even today, well, not today, but, but this is setting up in the room where I watch the balls get beat each, uh, each Saturday. This is sitting up on the uh, frame around the window. And now, why would I keep this? Obviously, I mean, no disrespect to my son, but, you know, it's not a work of art, truly, right? By the way, this is made of uh, colored straws and hot glue, okay? And it's precious to me, but if anyone wants to buy it, there is a price, just letting you know, okay? But this, this is not particularly, you know, great artistic. It, it's very good for how old you were when you made it, though, Joseph. I don't want you to hear the wrong thing here. But it has no monetary value, but it's still precious to me. Why? Why is this precious to me? Because it was given to me by someone I love, right? And he gave it to me as an expression of his love for me. Saints, when you give, don't give to gain approval from Calvary Bible Church. Don't give to gain approval from the elders. Don't give to gain approval from the pastor or any other person. Give because you love God. Give because you want your offering to be accepted by him. Well, so one of the principles of faithful stewardship is that we must approach it with the right heart attitude toward God. Well, there's certainly some overlap here, but the second principle that stands out in this text is this. Our giving must be sacrificial. Our giving must be sacrificial. When the rich people in this morning's text give their offering to the treasury, not only do they do uh, uh, so with less than godly motives, the insincerity which, with which they gave is evident in the fact that it came from their excess. It came from their excess. Sure, the amounts were large, probably staggering. But their offerings effectively cost them nothing. It cost them nothing. In contrast, when the poor widow dropped those two mites into the treasury, as we said earlier, the temple was no richer than it was before she came. What she gave effectively amounted to nothing, but it cost her everything. 
Many of you will remember the story from 2 Samuel 24 of David who was instructed to build an altar on the threshing floor owned by Arana the Jebusite. You remember that story? When David approached Arana about this, Arana was very hospitable and he graciously offered to give David the threshing floor for free. He said, take it. But David responds in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, and he says, No, but I will buy it for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Saints, David understood that we cannot bring an offering to God that we are not vested in. Whether we are talking about our time, our effort, our resources, or the money that we put in the offering plate, God does not want our leftovers. God does not want our leftovers. Remember, if our resources belong to Him, then our primary objective, our number one priority, should be to use those resources for the work of the kingdom. And this is more than just putting your offering at the top of your budget, okay? Practically speaking, it's about giving in a way that affects your lifestyles. Again, an offering should be a sacrifice. It should cost us something. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, quote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than one can spare. In other words, if our expenditure or comforts, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving way too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them, end quote. In a couple of weeks, we will be celebrating the resurrection. But I want to take us back a few days before the resurrection when Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. We all know that the cross was a horrible, horrible form of execution. It it was sadistic. It was merciless intentionally. But have you ever really contemplated the depths of horrors our Lord experienced that day? Have you really thought about those things? You see, for Jesus, the physical horrors, as horrendous as they are, they were just the beginning of his suffering. He also bears the pain and guilt of sin. Think about it. Our Lord, as he was experiencing the worst kind of physical suffering, in some inscrutable way, The one who knew no sin bore the full weight of your sins, of my sins, and the sins of all God's people, past, present, and future. 
wow. How do you think that felt? But it doesn't stop there. In the midst of the physical suffering and sin bearing, our Lord experienced something that, uh, that is truly heartbreaking. He was abandoned by God. We can't know that pain. We can't know it. He bore the full wrath that our sin deserves. Saints, we cannot begin to even imagine the depth of misery and suffering our Lord suffered on our behalf. It was truly a sacrifice like no other. Now, I bring this up to ask one simple question. How can we look at the depth of sacrifice of our Lord? How can we look at that, the sacrifice that he makes on our behalf and then not give sacrificially in return? How can we look back at the cross and then look forward to the eternity it has secured for us and then offer God our leftovers? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Think about it. The rich stewards in our text did not have the full picture of Christ's atoning work that you and I have. And yet, if our Lord condemns them for not giving sacrificially, how much more important and how much more of an indictment is it on us if we look upon the cross and then offer God something less than our best? What an indictment, right? Well, in closing, I want to share one more important thought. When we fail to be faithful in stewardship, when we fail to give with a right heart attitude, when we fail to give sacrificially, why do you think that is? Why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because of worldliness. Romans 12, verse 1. Again, text you're familiar with. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of everything you've done or, or God's done on your behalf. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, it's not just our financial giving that Paul has in mind here. It's our lives in general, of which our Financial stewardship is obviously a part. We are to present our whole bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, giving ourselves over completely to God is what's expected. As new creatures in Christ, we have been set free from the bondage to this world and we are now free to serve and worship God fully. But guess what? The world system isn't going to give up without a fight. It's not going to give up without a fight. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when Paul says do not be conformed to this world, he is setting it up as the antithesis to sacrificial living. He is saying in effect that that you are going to have to be deliberate in your pursuit of the things of God or the world is going to pull you back in. As we have hopefully seen, stewardship is an act of faithfulness. When we give sacrificially with a right heart attitude, we are expressing our faith and devotion to God. But when we do this, the world system is always going to attempt to put doubts in our minds. It's going to work hard to pull our hearts away from God. It's going to tell us that there's more satisfaction to be found elsewhere. It's going to tell us that God doesn't really mean what he says. Saints, don't believe these lies. If you belong to Christ, God wants how much of you? All of you. From giving to serving and everything in between. God wants it all. And he does not want to share you with the world. Earlier I shared a few words of wisdom from Irenaeus. When closing, I'd like to share the continuation of that quote. Which I think sums up our message this morning well. Quote, we must offer to God the first fruits of his creation. As Moses said, offerings are, not, are, offerings are no longer offered by bondsmen, but by free men. The Old Testament saints offer their tithes, but those who have received liberty set apart everything they have for the Lord's use, cheerfully and freely giving them, not as small things in hope of greater, but like the poor widow who put her whole livelihood into the treasury of God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we are, again, just so humbled to be able to proclaim your word, to be able to hear you speak to us uh, through these verses. And Father, I just pray that that uh, these words have not fallen on deaf ears. I pray that they would convict our hearts. And uh, uh, as you have ordained, that they would make and be an instrument of necessary change in the way that, that we live and the way that we think, and especially in the way as uh, we consider the topic of stewardship. So be with us, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.